Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story West Wind, originally published in Worlds of If in 1973. And it was reprinted in the story collection Stories from the Old Hotel, and it's also in the, the Best of Gene Wolfe collection. This is our first episode back from The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and it's also the first Gene Wolfe short story that was selected in our Patreon poll. There were some awesome stories up for selection, and it was a lot of fun to watch the results come in. Yeah, it was really great. But here's some of the highlights of the stories and novellas that did come in. We'll be covering the hero as Werewolf, La Bafana, and La Bafana will be having a special guest star. We'll be talking about the story with Mike Morrison, who is a co-host of a podcast called Metatrex about Star Trek, religion and philosophy in Star Trek in particular. We'll also be covering the novellas, The Death of Dr. Island, Silhouette, and For Lesson. This is going to be a long run of short stories and novellas between novels. In fact, it's going to be the the longest that we'll ever have. And I'm really excited about it. These are some great stories. Uh, And in fact, we left a lot of great stories on the table. And we also want to say that we're so super grateful to everyone who participated, both for supporting the network and making the show possible, but also for making these tough decisions for us. Yeah, absolutely. It is greatly appreciated. And thank you so much to all of our patrons for your financial support of the podcast and all of our listeners in general for just listening to us. If you want to become a patron, just go to Patreon and check out Clay Temple Media. We really do appreciate the support. There's a lot of great benefits that come with supporting this podcast. But we are going to cover Westwind now. So Glenn, why don't you take us through the recap? To all of you, my dearly loved fellow countrymen, and most particularly, as ever, to my eyes, West Wind. And so concludes the ruler. And in this steaming, stinking tavern, the television screen that occupies an entire wall begins to waver. The garden of almost inconceivable beauty mists and changes. The marble fountains and the rose trees fade into soft old valentines, while the ruler's chair turns to bronze and then umber. The image of the ruler himself transforms first to a picture, then a poster, and finally, a postage stamp. The lame old woman who runs the tavern turns off the wall screen, and several customers protest, but she scolds them. You heard what he said. You know your duty. Why do you have to listen to some simpleton from the Department of Truth say everything over in longer words and spread his spittle on it? So, what we've got here is a a pretty standard post-Second World War television broadcast from the head of state, uh, just with a way cooler type of TV, I think even than we have now, but especially than they had in 1973. And on top of all of this, Wolf tells us that a a few of the customers talk about the ruler's address, but not the the content, because that could not have meant much to them, but really about the ruler himself and his garden. And mostly what they do is exchange bits of palace gossip of untold age. Yeah, Wolf here basically is describing what has become the hellscape of the modern sports bar in the opening of this story, where just screens cover the walls, except this wall turns back into a normal wall, which would be great if uh, if a sports bar could do that as well. I, I really love the opening of this story. We're meant to read the opening quote to this story as the very end of this King's speech. So in classic Wolf fashion, we have no idea what the content of the speech is. And we're only going to get hints that it is a kind of typical keep on trucking your great subjects. I love you all sort of speech. And 
we also get the title of the story, Westwind, in this king's speech. And, and that draws us immediately into the mystery of who or what Westwind is. All we know at this point is that Westwind is the king's eyes. But on an expositional note, the West Wind, in Greek mythology at least, is known as Zephyrus or Zephyr, and it has a really positive connotation, that of bringing warmth or healing or love. So Wolf is making a connection here between the name West Wind and its kind of mythological connotation, though there are biblical connotations as well. Right. All over the Levant, the Eastern Mediterranean, the West Wind is generally regarded as the good wind because it's coming from the the ocean. It's a, it's a cool, moist breeze. The East Wind is the bad wind that is coming from over the desert or coming from the more arid uh, side of the of the region. And this is something that we see in biblical scripture, as you say, Brandon, but also all over classical literature, especially the Greek classical literature. It, you know, it also shows up in Tolkien, where the east wind is evil because it comes from Mordor. And, and if you've ever spent any time with Baromir's death song in The Lord of the Rings, uh, you will know all about this. This is this great moment where Gimli refuses to sing any songs about the east wind because it is evil. Yeah, and all of this is going to come back in our discussion as well. What I find interesting also about this opening is that there are only a few people at the bar at this point, and we're going to see a flood of people come to the bar in a few moments. And these people are interested in hearing the king's address to his subjects, but they also want to hear the spin on it. They want to hear the Department of Truth talk about the king's speech. And this to me reads as a sort of dystopia where the king says one thing and relays information to his subjects about how to live or the the spirit of the country or the spirit of living in his kingdom. And immediately people get on air afterwards to spin it in such a way that all the meaning is kind of leached out of the words of the king. And this is why the quote, lame old woman who runs the place turns the speech off as soon as it's finished. And we'll learn more about her by the end of the story as well. But it is really important by the time we get to the end of the story that, that the proprietor of this dive bar is described as a lame woman. This is a very important theme in the story. Our three main characters as we meet them all have some sort of issue that lowers their status in society. And we're going to meet one of these people right now because we are at this point introduced to our protagonist who is a man with a blue scar that covers half of his face and he enters the bar and uh, this is really maybe an, an inn. It offers rooms as well as food and drink and he is soaking wet from the fierce rainstorm outside and the descriptions of this place, although you've said, Brandon, this feels like a sports bar and it definitely does, but it also really feels like the beginning of an RPG novel, the the, the kind of cheap knockoff of the Prancing pony and there are even some hulking dirty men here who may as well be half orcs and our protagonist is you know, he is scarred he's wearing a cloak i mean he may as well be strider or aragorn or really he may as well be the cheap knockoff of aragorn that we find in these rpg novels yeah that's going to be more explicit later and i'll point out the point of the story where i thought this is just aragorn i, I have that note as uh, a part of this story this does feel like an rpg in with uh, technology instead of uh, just wood everywhere. It's hilarious and it's great. And it is going to be a while. In fact, actually, we are never going to learn this character's true name. It is going to be a while before we learn what his uh, his designation is, much like Aragorn, 
also known as Strider. Well, our our protagonist wants coffee, he wants two sandwiches, and he also wants a room for the night. And the lame old woman stares at his scarred face with revulsion, and he does not react well to it. But eventually, they come to an understanding. Now, at this point, another customer comes in, and she's a, a blind woman. She's she's young, she's a, a, attractive, and the protagonist is immediately kind of interested in her. And she's just come from the terminal, which is, I guess, either a train station or a bus station or, I don't know, some future transportation, something like that. Might be might be a helicopter terminal if we're in uh, Sonia Crane, Wesselman, and Kitty. This woman has had to walk the whole way because the storm is too much for the city buses or the, the cabs to be operating. And she needs a room as well. But our protagonist tells her that this is really not a nice place and that maybe she should not stay here. And she ignores him and books a room. And when he also offers her one of his sandwiches, she explains that she has her own money and can take care of herself. Wolf is really hammering home the point here that this whole community that supports this local bar is really just poor people. They're all down and out. They live in a tenement. They're kind of filthy. They're hulking. They're brooding. They act out. It's an unpleasant place to be. You know, given that information, it's really important to note that the man who enters the bar, who was maimed in some fashion with the scarring, that this physical disfigurement has him sort of ostracized from the normal society. I mean, even the proprietor of the bar gives him a really difficult time. This is a really rough place for this guy to be. When the blind girl comes in, the only person willing to help her is the scarred man. And he does this by opening his jacket and showing her his communicator, which makes everybody laugh. And having a communicator is obviously an important thing. Uh, Not everybody has them and they're valuable items. And it just gives you a sense of the, the, the cruelty, the casual cruelty that exists within this bar. There's some cool stuff also going on in this section. Um, namely that the coffee can is somehow technological just really adds to the whole sense of advanced technology that the proprietress of the establishment cracks open the lid and then a handle pops out and it steams. Uh, This is a cool way to get a cup of coffee. It's like a Blade Runner coffee, I think, (laughs) is what's going on here. It's pretty great. It seemed like it actually would just be like right at home in an MRE, right out in the army. This didn't really seem all that different from how we had to make coffee out in the the field back in those days. Yeah, I suppose that's true too. And and I think Wolf is pulling on maybe some difficult experiences, as as we'll get to in the discussion and in the writing of this story. And I just want to point out here once more that there are way more people in the bar to watch the sport the game take place than there were in the King's speech. And this is really, you know, a major part of this scene is the crowd is not interested in what the King has to say, but only interested in entertainments. And the inn is really filling up now. There are really the whole, like the whole neighborhood seemingly is coming in for this game. And we never actually even learned what type of sport or, or game this actually is. It's totally inconsequential. And in fact, I think that's actually part of the point that Wolf is making here. As the inn continues to fill up with the neighborhood crowd, the protagonist continues to explain to the, the blind woman that this really, really is a bad place. And we learn that he himself is only staying here because money is a problem for him because he recently lost his job. He acquired his scar in a workplace accident and his employer just wouldn't keep him on because his scar would actually frighten the other employees, maybe also customers. And the woman asks, isn't there insurance for that? And I was really interested in what Wolf meant by by this. Is it health insurance to fix the scar or is it some kind of insurance against losing a job that she means? This wasn't clear, but either way, this doesn't seem to be a good world for workers. And indeed, we're going to get some more of this type of world building right now. 
Both of these people, the the scarred man and the blind woman, have a, a positive view of the ruler, even though they themselves are not doing well in the ruler's society. But they both agree that the ruler does his best for the people. It's simply that the people won't cooperate with the ruler. Everyone complains about the crime problem, but it's the people who commit the crimes. The ruler tries to clean the air and the water for everyone, but people take shortcuts that damage the environment whenever they think they won't be caught. And on top of that, the bosses live in luxury because of the ruler, but then they cheat on the standards whenever they can. And on this topic, the scarred man even says that the ruler should destroy the bosses, but the blind woman reminds him that the ruler loves them. The ruler loves everyone, and she emphasizes that he really, truly loves every single person. It's a thing that is inconceivable to most of us, but is true about the ruler. He loves every person. I'm in awe of the way that Wolf does exposition through dialogue in this section and world building through dialogue. We just get the briefest glimpse into the world of these protagonists through their negative experiences of the, you know, the the scarred man and the blind woman's negative experiences. And here, you know, we're again, as you said, Glenn, we're doubling down on the fact that this is a bad neighborhood and that this hostel or inn is just a rough place to stay. And Wolf here in his world building is, is kind of distraught about how the economics of this world function and the way people don't care about their environment and the world they live in. I read this as work providing people with healthcare benefits that asks a lot of them, asks them to risk their their lives and limbs uh, and putting their lives on the line for a job, but you have to be there for a probationary period. And if you're not, you're not covered, you're out. And this type of policy is designed to protect the employer really from paying health care or even keeping someone on due to an injury. This is a terrible sort of environment and one that kind of mirrors a little bit of our health care situation today. And, you know, as the as the scarred man is explaining this, Wolf has the blind girl say, I see in response, which I think is kind of a, a cute joke. Also, it's probably the case that she's the only one who really does see this situation clearly. This is a, a great bit of irony to bring uh, truth to the front. The blind girl also clearly understands the king's wishes for his people and the world. The king loving everyone is a very important through line of this story. And it's easy to take umbrage and to side with the scarred man for hating the wealthy, for cheating everybody and ignoring the king's desires. But the king loves even them. And this is I wonder Wolf writing a, a kind of corrective for himself, as we've seen in Operationaries as well, this attitude of almost him reminding himself through writing that if God says he loves everybody, he even loves the people that it's easy to despise for their corruption, for the way they corrupt the world. And we see the blind woman and the scarred man talk about and theorize about Westwind and who he is. And the scarred man says he is probably not somebody who you would guess who, who seems just like a normal person. And they have this role in the kingdom of having the king's ear and having an audience with the king. And this is where there's that, that real Strider Aragorn bit of business taking place here. And I love it. I love it. Yeah, this is a fantastic scene. There's a there's a nice joke here about how loving everyone doesn't mean the ruler still doesn't prefer some people over others. There's some more play on the, the use of see as a, a verb that also means to understand and comprehend. And we're going to find out soon that they're both kind of talking at, at cross purposes here. 
the blind woman wants to emphasize that just because West Wind is called his eyes doesn't mean he has to be someone who sees. And West Wind wants to emphasize that, yes, he may be someone who would not strike you as having the ear of the ruler. And we'll we'll get more on this soon. So again, at this point, the, the scarred man tries to warn the blind woman away from this inn. And he even suggests that she would have been safer if she'd stayed at the terminal but here she explains that she tried that. She tried just sleeping on a bench at the terminal, but there were some men there who were also trying to sleep, and at least one of them kept molesting her. This was irritating, she says, but wasn't actually the biggest problem. What really drove her off was that one of the men told the others that if they didn't leave her alone, he'd kill them. And she got worried that there would be a fight and you know some real violence because of her presence there, and so she decided to leave. So at this point, they're both ready to turn in for the the night. They're not interested in the game at all. But the scarred man asks the blind woman to meet him for breakfast in the morning, and she agrees. The old woman shows them to the rooms, and she explains that the, the men who stay here often urinate in the stairway, even though there is a perfectly fine toilet where they could do that. And she knows that they do this only because it makes them feel like they're getting away with something. And, and, and this is actually something of a refrain in the story. People doing awful things just to feel like they have some power or some control. I think that this old woman's sympathy for those who do wrong to her is actually a really beautiful thought in the story. And she's really full of compassion. And I think this is a really good way to characterize uh, a people who feel oppressed or that their freedoms are being taken away, that the small bits of defiance they have are the only ways that they feel they can win in the world. And this is a really great way to think about how society functions in general, I think, which is if you give people ways to win that aren't acts of rebellion, you can deal with a lot of so-called societal problems and ills. Obviously, people peeing in a stairwell is terrible, and people making a habit of it and a culture of it at this bar uh, to tease an old woman means that this is a truly broken down world that these people feel like the only thing they have left is to pee in a stairwell in defiance of this old woman because she's running a business. And this is, again, a sense of the breakdown of economic class that Wolf is uh, threading through this story. And I think Wolf does a beautiful job of summing up how to be compassionate to those who we find to be irritating, but maybe aren't doing anything more than irritating us with their lack of civility. I think it's a beautiful passage, and I really love this old woman's perspective. And I think we see this as well with the the blind woman who's being molested. Her primary concern should be about the fact that she's being molested while she's trying to sleep by people who are taking advantage of the fact that she is blind and alone in this bus terminal or train terminal or whatever. But she too sympathizes with them, pities them in some way. Her concern was that her presence would was going to destabilize their group and cause violence within that group. That's what concerned her. So she as well is full of compassion, even though she's being victimized. And she's being victimized in a way that obviously is way more horrible, orders of magnitude more horrible than is happening to the, the woman who, who runs the, the bar here. But yeah, this is exactly something Wolf is showing us. All of these downtrodden characters have this attribute to them. Well, the scarred man and the blind woman follow the the lame old woman upstairs, and their rooms are, are right next to each other, but these aren't 
There's not really rooms. It's, in fact, one room that's been partitioned with cardboard dividers. I think we've all probably stayed in a hostel like this at some point in our lives. And once they're in their rooms, the the scarred man takes out his communicator and dials 123-333-4477, which is the private phone number of the ruler. And it turns out, of course, I think as we all suspected it would, that the scarred man is Westwind, the eyes and the trusted advisor of the ruler. He reports that he has a place to sleep tonight, even though he hasn't found another job yet. And even better, he's met a woman that he thinks might like him. And the ruler smiles at this news, and Westwind goes on. He continues his report. He says that the woman is very loyal to the ruler, but maybe not so much the rest of the people here at this inn. And he reports this incident at the terminal, the the woman being molested. And he says that he had wanted to ask the ruler to punish the molester and to reward the protector. But now it's actually occurred to him that they may be the same person. And he imagines a scenario in which a, a man does something awful just so that he can be the person to put an end to it, to, to play hero, even though there really never was any problem other than him to begin with, someone who sets a fire in order to put it out and be praised as the, the hero. And the ruler says that, yeah, they, they often are the same men. I think this line, they are often the same man, is a really important thing to keep in mind as we prepare for the discussion. Thinking about the dual nature of man, the king seems to be lost in thought as he says this, as though he said something profound or surprised himself by saying something profound. Uh, it's a really important line. And I like the way Westwind kind of reasons through this and now maybe knows that he can actually on some level protect this woman, though we know she's fully capable of taking care of herself. The, the characterization in this story is incredible. I love the reveal of Westwind here, though it's not the only reveal we'll get before the story is through. You know, we know that the scarred man is speaking of himself earlier in the story when he responds uh, with the question of, do you think Westwind is important to the king or something like that? And he responds, he is. And he's talking about himself. And Westwind really relishes having this sort of access to the king. And I think it's very sweet that the king displays an interest in Westwind's personal life or the scarred man's personal life and his loves and his hopes. But I think what's really important out of this conversation is what the scarred man says to the king about being a loyal subject, which we're just about to get to. Right. The ruler really is interested in Westwind. He's really concerned about how Westwind is doing since the loss of his job, since the, the, the accident that scarred his face. But Westwind actually is quite optimistic and really cheerful. This is something that the ruler likes. And Westwind explains that, of course, it's easy to be cheerful because he has known all of his life that he was the ruler's spy and the ruler's confidant. And he says it's like knowing where a treasure is hidden. The ruler ends this conversation by saying that he doesn't want to aid Westwind openly unless he absolutely has to. But he says that he'll find other ways to help him, other ways that are are less noticeable to others. And then the ruler says, just do not pawn your communicator, no matter what. And then he signs off. This response to the king is absolutely crucial, I think, to understanding the whole thrust of the story. This phrase, hidden treasure, comes from a very brief parable found in the New Testament in Matthew 13. Christ is teaching uh, using parables. Matthew is kind of famous for this. And uh, this is what Christ says. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. 
And from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And here we have the same sort of play of language taking place. You know, it's okay that he has nothing. The king instructs him not to pawn his communicator. That's one thing he can't sell, which should clue us into maybe the symbolic importance of the communicator in this story. But we have the hidden treasure and the cheerfulness or joy that comes from possessing that hidden treasure, which is understanding what it means to be an agent in the kingdom of heaven or living in the kingdom of heaven. It's a very, very important theme, I think, in this story. And I mean, I I just want to point out that this is a specific connection in this story to the teachings and life of Christ, who also was a person, Christ, who helped and healed those who were blind and lame. They don't get healing of scarring, but in the book of Job, which is about you know strife and struggle and questioning the justice of God, one of Job's friends who is trying to explain God's justice to Job says, behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves for he inflicts pain and he gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. And I think we're seeing something of that taking place in this story as well, especially as we move into the discussion and look at some of the context under which this story was written. But we're not quite there yet. There's still a little bit more to go. Right. We've got more revelations to, to come here. So this conversation between Westwin and the ruler is now over. And, and Westwin goes to bed, but there's a thump from the other side of the, the room, the blind woman's side of the room. She has bumped into the cardboard partition, and Westwin has to get up to, to catch it before it clatters to the ground on his side of the, the room. And doing this, of course, lets him see into her room. And, and she's unaware of all of this because of her, her blindness. And Westwind feels an intense desire for this woman at this moment, and he decides to watch her undress. And as she is undressing, she herself gets out a communicator of her own and calls someone. And when that person answers, she says, this is Westwind. I'm all right. At first, I didn't think I was going to be able to find a place to stay tonight, but I have, and I've met someone. And when the scarred man discovers that the blind woman is also Westwind, he quietly puts the partition back. And when she is done speaking with the ruler, he calls to her through the partition to remind her about breakfast. And then they wish each other a good night. And this brings the the main action of the story to a close, but we get a a coda here before we're going to shut the covers on this story. Downstairs in her private room, the lame old woman who runs the inn also dials a number on a communicator. Hello, she says. This is Westwind. And that's the end of the story. (laughs) The reveals at the end of this story, you know, that all of these people are Westwind is just so delightful. And and I think it just harkens back to my previous statement about, you know, the way this is connected to the life and, and teachings of Christ, that these downtrodden, the lame, the blind, the maimed are the people for whom the kingdom of heaven is for and f- who are the cheerful agents of of Christ in this world. Uh, and the king obviously is this God figure, which uh, I'll point out explicitly why that's the case in just a moment in our discussion. But I just have to say, I really, I really loved this story and the way it's written. So uh, we should just get right into the discussion. 
Yeah, I really love this story too. And I'm, I'm excited to unpack this in the discussion. There's a lot going on beneath the surface here. You've teased a, a lot of it already, but there's just, this is in some ways kind of the most quintessential wolf story we've encountered so far. We've got this, this interest in a kind of futuristic dystopia, kind of capitalist dystopia, and also his profound interest in the, the salvation of Christianity combined here in a way that I don't think we've seen so explicit before. And I'm, I'm eager to dig into this. Yeah, and we'll get to some of those uh, approaches to the story from a non-religious standpoint, I think, towards the end of our discussion. But I really want to start the discussion with the religious connotations because of what Wolf says in the introduction to the story that's found in the introduction to the stories of the old hotel and also his author's note from the best of Gene Wolf. So I'm just going to read both of those for us and, and kind of ask you how that shapes the story for you because it really shaped how I thought about this story in preparing for the discussion. Wolf writes this in the introduction to Stories of the Old Hotel. Westwind, written in 1972 during a time of considerable stress, remains one of my favorites to this day. According to Hollywood legend, a certain poor screenwriter was summoned to the vast estate of the head of one of the great studios of the 30s. Asked afterwards how he had liked its acres of manicured grounds, the writer said, Wonderful. It just goes to show you what God could have done if he'd had the money. When I wrote this particular story, I was speculating upon what God might have done if only he had the technology, or at least that's what I believe now. Others have found a great many other things in here, and 16 years is a long time. Anyway, I had a CB radio back when everybody in America had a CB radio, and my handle was Westwind. So that's the introduction to the stories from the old hotel, which is really an introductory note. And this is his author's note in the best of Gene Wolfe. Wolfe wrote this. It was not until I had prepared to write this author's note that I realized that long before I wrote this story, the great G.K. Chesterton had written an entire book in which all the members of a gang of revolutionaries save its head and one other were spies for assorted police agencies and government bureaus. Its head was God. The book is The Man Who Was Thursday. You can find a copy if you look, and I suggest you read it. So I think, like, I mean, there's a lot of fun notes here, but the common note is that he evokes in both of these notes uh, that this is clearly about God on some level. The king is explicitly God. But Glenn, uh, you know, what else do you get from these comments, and how did hearing these comments, you know, maybe reshape your reading of this story? I think probably the most important thing I took from this note, and really from the the introduction in stories from the old hotel, is that we need to get a CB and just maybe check and see if West Wind is still out there. We'll we'll report back, we promise. But the idea that this is a story about what God would do if only he'd had the technology, I, I think this is really pointing to the idea that there's this real obstacle to modern people, 20th century, late 20th century, early 21st century people having a relationship with God, which is that the way that he has communicated his plan for us and the the path to salvation is in this old book that is heavy to lug around and thick and difficult to read and maybe more of a commitment, a time commitment than than many people want to want to put in. 
but what if God could actually just call us on our cell phone? Or better, what if we could just check in with God on our on our cell phone ourselves? We can call God on our cell phone every night before we go to bed and actually talk to Him and have Him tell us how much He's concerned for us, tell us how much He's going to help us, and tell us not to get rid of our phones, no matter how tough things get. Wolf here is envisioning a way that technological people could have a relationship with God that is meaningful to them in the way perhaps that people in the ancient world were able to because they didn't have the technological distractions that we have. I guess really what I'm trying to say is that this is how God gets through to us in an age of technological distractions when you've got whole walls that turn into TVs that will show you the game. Right. Or just a CB radio in your den uh, and you're just flipping through channels, maybe hoping to hear something from God even that way. This whole idea of communication. You know, if if I'm right in my connection to the passage in Matthew 13, that this is God instructing Westwind, who is Wolf, to not stop praying, to not give up hope, to not pawn the communicator, so to speak. And, and another thing really struck me, given Wolf's description of the story of the man who was Thursday, which is from another passage in Matthew. It's Matthew 6, which is right after the Beatitudes. Uh, Christ says this, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And here's the kind of, you know, man who was Thursday bit here. And this is also in Westwind as well. So that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Christ goes on to say the same thing about praying in an inner room, um, that the father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this passage really resonates with me thematically in this story with the way that the scarred man is so angry at the wealthy and the way they secretly destroy but openly have a reward. And I think all of this stuff is on Wolf's mind. One thing I want to ask you, Glenn, is what do you think Wolf is doing as he's writing this story, going through a difficult time, clearly revealing himself to be West Wind? Um, what is he reminding him himself of? What is he trying to retain as a writer, but also as a man who is producing this story. And I think once we move through maybe some of this religious stuff, we can talk about some of the way this story functions on a non-religious level. But just I want to see if you're picking up on some of the same themes that I am in this story. I was really struck by that bit in the introduction as well, this idea of having a, a tough time. We all go through tough times of, of varying sorts. And this to me really is the most hopeful and optimistic story that we've read from from Wolf. This is a story that envisions that God really, really, really does love every single person, not in some abstract sense, but in a personal sense. This is a story about the most downtrodden people in this society calling God on the phone every night to check in and just to hear him say, I care about you. I'm concerned about you. I'm thinking about you. Keep it up. And don't sever our connection, right? Keep me with you. Stay connected with me and things will work out, I promise, right? This is something we all, I think, need to hear from somebody in some sense from from time to time. And this is really just a, a absolutely beautiful sentiment. 
and I think it's just fantastic that Wolf has has turned that feeling, uh, whatever this was that was you know making this a hard time for him, into this story. And something that also I think really jumped out to me in this story is the significance of the blind woman here. It really might just say the significance of romantic love in this story as well. You know, we know Wolf writes about his his family life in some of his introductions. He talks about his family life in interviews. He's dedicated books to his wife, to his kids. We know that he converted to Catholicism for his wife, Rosemary. And this to me also feels like a comment here in some way, just about the importance of Rosemary in his life during this time as well. And someone who is uh, only a few weeks away from celebrating his first wedding anniversary, this was something that also really got to me about this story of just seeing how, you know, the presence of God in your life, but also the love of a partner or something in your life can help you get through these times. It was a really emotive story for me on these levels. Absolutely. And and Wolf is just doing the wolfy thing where he, he kind of obscures some of these themes. But I think this is a very personal story for Wolf. He says it's still one of his favorites. And I think he is just going through a really stressful time. And, and I think you're absolutely right to point out he's just reminding himself that finding somebody to love and finding a way to be with them is an extremely important expression, maybe, of God's love. That the God is glad that this is taking place, but also that the things you do that nobody recognizes to keep your life going will be rewarded. And the people who are ostentatious about or taking credit for things that maybe you felt you've done or accomplished are have already received their reward. This is a big theme in the story. And there's this environmental and economic kick that really harkens back to some of like Wolf's angry stories from his earlier period is more political stories. And maybe that's a good way to talk about looking at the story from the non-religious point of view. Um, obviously, being a secret agent in a kingdom is important in this story, but that's not unique necessarily to Christianity. So I really want to start with this odd note of the Department of Truth corrupting the word of the king. Obviously, we could look at that in a uh, sense of you know the clergy corrupting the Bible in some way, but I'm wondering, Glenn, what's your sense of the, reading this story as if it has no uh, religious significance, as it would be to maybe a science fiction audience in the 1970s? Right. Of course, the thing that jumped out to me immediately was, oh gosh, is is, is Wolf making a critique of organized religion here of the of the clergy? But I, there is this whole level here, right, where this is a science fiction totalitarian dystopia as well. This is the the same writer who wrote Operation Ares and Sonia Crane Wesselman and Kitty and how the whip came back, right? This is Wolf being super concerned, very concerned about uh, about the political issues of his day. And if we're going to go that route, right, this is then a 1984 moment here where the ruler is awesome, but it's that his words are distorted by this department of truth. Uh, The ruler loves everyone, wants everyone to, to thrive in every way possible, but there is some level of bureaucracy that is in the way there. And we get all of these world building details about how people are in some ways, taking advantage of the ruler's love. The bosses who owe everything that they have to the ruler cheat on their their taxes or or lie about the revenues or, or, or something in order to get more. And they are clearly cheating 
people, right? I think there's a clear sense here that West Wind has been victimized by the the bosses, and Wolf sympathizes with him. We're also meant to to sympathize with his plight here. Uh, people polluting the environment simply out of laziness. And and actually, there's a real strand here, right? When we see people not doing things that we would think of as being political, but we see the, the these people molesting the blind woman and urinating in the stairwell, that this is a society suffused with people doing whatever they think they can get away with, almost just because there's some satisfaction out of getting away with something. And I think this is something that we saw in Operation Ares as well, where where we were surprised at the end of that book to, to see Wolf advocating for a universal basic income, but that really what we had perceived as kind of Wolf's objections to the welfare state weren't about the welfare part of it. They were actually about the, the state part of it, that Wolf at this moment really believes that government is something that kind of gets in the way, that bureaucracy anyway is something that gets in the way, and that the more of that you can get rid of, then the better off people will be. And so here, this is the information, the sort of spin doctor middle men who are really maybe responsible for breaking everything that the ruler is trying to do for the society and everything that the people want. No, I think you're, I think you're really onto something there, Glenn. And I think that some excellent points you make. I mean, it it didn't occur to me that both the top level of society and the bottom level uh, are operating in parallel. Something in the society is so broken that the way people act out reveals the way society functions generally. And the parallels between the elite classes polluting and getting away and cheating is the norm. That's the ideological norm. And the only way that the the people who can't achieve the status of being elite can act out is by cheating and acting out in these small and petty ways that do less harm but are more of an immediate nuisance to people in their own community. And I just think that that Wolf, again, is surprisingly understanding of the failings of some of these ideological systems, particularly living in America in the 1970s. So I I think Wolf has all of this on his mind as he's writing this story on top of a, a personal stressor where he needs reminding that he needs to continue to be prayerful to love his wife to love god and all this stuff is working together and it's no wonder to me that this is one of wolf's own continual favorites of his own story it's a beautiful story and it works on so many levels and uh, i'm really grateful we had a chance to read it for this week yeah this story was an absolute delight I will say I had a stressful week this week myself. Everything that could go wrong seemed to have gone wrong this week within the confines of a person having a a normal week. Things are fine. But... I needed this story this week, too. It reminded me, in fact, to put things in perspective and to realize that as stressed as I was, things were fine. Nothing really bad had happened. I just had a lot of work to do, right? And I I needed to hear this, and I'm glad that Wolf wrote this story. But I think uh, with that, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brendan Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. 
Head on over to the Clay Temple forums. Let us know what you thought of West Wind. Did you find this as optimistic and hopeful as we did? Also, something I think we'd love to talk about on the forums is the fact that uh, we maybe didn't really talk that much about the significance of the name East Wind all the way back when we were doing a story by John V. Marsh. But it's very clear that Wolf wrote this story around the same time and so had this contrast between West Wind and East Wind on his mind. Uh, come over to the forums and talk with us about that. Yeah, I'd love to hear our listeners' thoughts about that. But if you haven't already, we'd really love for you to check out our other show that we just launched, Elder Sign. Next time on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, we'll be covering the story, How I Lost the Second World War and Helped Turn Back the German Invasion. A lot of ours in that title. Uh, but you can find that story in the collection, The Castle of Days. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>